0: Well, from the reading of the text, uh, you'll notice that at this point, uh, the author is no longer attaching a particular action of faith to a particular person. He mentions six names in verse 32, but doesn't attribute anything specific to them, as he has uh, done in the the verses prior. And then in verse 33 through 35, he mentions a number of, of actions and deeds of faith, but doesn't attach any names to them. Now we can put names to some of them, uh, those actions of faith, because we're familiar with the Old Testament, but it'd be pretty hard to attach a name to all of them, they're not specific enough. But be that as it may, verse 32, four heroes of faith from the book of Judges are mentioned, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Uh, how many of you guys have read the book of Judges lately? We're in the middle of it for devotions. What a rocking book, Judges. I mean, some of it. Anyway. And then there's two from First and 2 Samuel, that's David and Samuel himself. And of course, from those books, we know uh, what these people did by faith. And while the author of Hebrews says that, you know, he didn't have time to address those things, it doesn't mean that we don't, Right? Right? Okay, all right, because we've been in Hebrews 11 for I don't know how long now. There's no reason to leave. <laughs> so I want to take some time and look at each of the men listed from the book of Judges. Okay, so that excludes David and Samuel. Um, and I like all this. Uh, and I've grown to like these particular men more as time goes on, okay. especially as I leave the arrogance of youth. At least I think I am. So, that, that their names are mentioned in Hebrews 11 intrigues me. Maybe it does you as well. And as I've matured in the faith, it's helped me to be more reasonable and honest with myself and, uh, and, and with others as well. Uh, and it's important, as Paul says, uh, he tells us that the Old Testament history and the lives of the people were recorded for our instruction. Romans 15, 4, and for our admonition, that is, our warning, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, okay? And so the author may not have had time to explore their lives, but I think he certainly wanted his audience to take the time to do that. So let's, let's do that. I'd like to take them in the order that we find them in verse 32, which actually isn't in the same order in the book of Judges, Okay? Uh, not really a big deal. Uh, the more that we research the book of Judges and the timeline, apparently there was some overlap of uh, some of the judges' rule, uh, just ruling in different parts of Israel. And uh, so anyway, before we look at these men, I'd like to consider a question. Okay. And uh, now, when we were talking about Hagar, we we were considering perhaps a question. You know, the kinds of people that God saves. And concluding that he is willing to save all kinds of people and has saved all kinds of people since the world began, and he's going to continue to do so until the world ends. Hagar and other people uh, is a clear demonstration of that. But today, I'd like us to consider this. How many of you have thought yourself to be disqualified from being used by the Lord? How many of you have thought yourself disqualified? from being used by the Lord, you thought perhaps because of some deficiency in your character or because of some moral failure, God would never use you, so you never bothered asking, and you've never pursued some form of ministry. Now, let me clarify, by ministry, I do not mean standing behind this piece of wood. uh, It's the strangest thing, I think, biblically to think that, that this is the ministry. Uh, I don't mean that, I just mean serving the Lord in some capacity, uh, especially by his leading. Well, I believe that the names of these men appear in Hebrews chapter 11, at least in part, to address that issue. Why? Well, because these men are not what most parents would put as a role model for their children. Okay? Now, if the last time you visited their stories was as a child in Sunday school, you probably have held all these men in high esteem and you can't figure out why I would say such a thing, but if you've visited their stories in their entirety since being adult, uh, you're probably not so perplexed. Uh, you would have learned that these men are not the men of legend and fairy tale who exuded like a, a flawless righteousness. Rather, these were men of frailty and moral weakness, okay? If you haven't read the story of late, I encourage you to do that later so that you don't think I'm a complete bad person uh, when I'm done talking about all of it, okay? When you, when you study their lives, you're constantly waiting for moral courage and character to reveal itself, except maybe with Jephthah, okay? Yeah, which he reveals it in a tragic, tragic way. But you quickly realize, looking at their lives, that their faith and spirituality are not on the same page. There's really no consistency between them. Uh, their great actions of faith do not correspond with their character. At okay, Different degrees, their lives were a mess, even while accomplishing great feats of faith. How is that possible? Doing things for God and being screwed up. Does that hit home for any of you guys? being used by God, but being kind of useless. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, is that God was fully aware of every flaw they had when he called them, and he was fully aware of every blunder they would make before he called them, and yet he called them, and he used them for his glory and to deliver, to deliver his people Israel. I think that it confuses a lot of people, especially self-righteous people, Yeah. And it would appear, perhaps, that God was taking a chance with these men, but there was no gamble. Okay? If he hadn't known the very end of all things from the very beginning and everything in between, then we could say that he was taking a chance with them, but he knew everything in advance. And he still chose them, he still used them. And that's what fascinates me about God. He knows all, he knows everything and yet we're all here, you and I. And then when we get to the book of Hebrews, we have God's comments about these men, and nothing of their flaws are mentioned. Apparently, we didn't write the document. Nothing, nothing. The righteous one points out no unrighteousness. You know, he doesn't dig into their Twitter account from the past, looking to incriminate them. He doesn't search their college or high school yearbooks, okay? He doesn't need to do that to find out that we're disqualified. And that's what's so interesting about us, perhaps, is that sinners very often point out the sins of others, as I'm about to do. It typically goes something like this. You know, David was a great king who's a great man. He was a man after God's own heart, according to the Holy Spirit, but there was that whole Bathsheba incident. We've got to get that jab in there. We don't want David to stand above us. Yeah. We sinners have a tendency to do that, but I, I, think, I think I'm trying to exercise caution when I do that, not to make it a point of criticism or condemnation, but a lesson on the frailty of human nature and the necessity of God's sustaining grace. After all, it does say in Ezekiel that God said, I will put my spirit in them and I will cause them to walk in my ways. Because if he leaves walking in his ways up to you, guess what? I hope you know. Because if you don't, you're completely blind and self-righteous. Okay, yeah. As sinners, we need to be reminded that while we may be quick to remember the sins of others, God is quick to remember them no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. As David declared and experienced for himself, he said, Blessed is the man to whom God shall never, no, not ever, hold his sin against him. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Yeah. But we're fine with God tossing our sins behind his back, but we certainly like to retrieve the sins of others. One Bible teacher says, we like to bury the hatchet with the handle sticking out of the ground so that we have easy access to it, right? We like it that God drowns our sins in the depths of the sea. But boy, we can resuscitate sins, can't we? The sins of others. And I think for just the right occasion, we keep them on life support so that we can make that, yeah, we're good at that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it provides us with a sense of moral superiority, forgetting that there's nothing morally superior about self-righteousness or unforgiveness, yeah. Now, I think that this certainly doesn't mean that sin should never be recalled, as Paul did in Corinthians, as the author of Hebrews has already done earlier, but we should do it humbly and cautiously in order to use it, as Paul said, for our instruction, for our admonition, that is, for what to avoid and what to stay away from, Amen? Yeah, bad examples are good examples. You understand, right? Okay, all right. And I hope to do that this morning. I want to be honest about these men while making uh, or continuing this observation about God, hopefully, that will encourage some of you. Now, as we look at these men, it has to be said that God is not endorsing their flaws, okay, and He's certainly not ignoring their sins, the Bible says that no sin will go unchecked by the Lord. So God, we see him using these men in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their failures, and that, by the way, has been his habit since Adam ate the fruit, right? And we are the children of Adam. Uh, Jesus came to save sinners because that's all there was, amen? That's all there was. So the only option that God has when it comes to working with man is working with broken ones who are morally weak and deficient in character. Yeah. That doesn't mean that God doesn't demand righteousness from us or that moral virtue isn't required, somehow making you know, character irrelevant. Paul said, listen carefully, he says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal, the Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Depart from iniquity. God said, be holy for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. In David's psalm of repentance, he said, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, Psalm 51.6. Yeah. So if there's one thing that God is after, as we know from Romans chapter 8, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it is our likeness to his son who is the pinnacle of moral virtue and character. Okay. So let's, let's look at these men. As I said earlier, if the last time you visited the book of Judges was in your Sunday, do, Sunday school days as a child, you probably have really good memories of these men as I did. But I remember the disappointment I had the first time I read Judges 8, verse 22 through 28, as a believing adult. I couldn't believe what I read. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. After God granted so many victories and miraculous events, Gideon took the spoils of war, if you recall, the gold, and he made, a fashioned an ephod out of it, like the priest wore. He displayed it in his city and then worshipped it like an idol. He, and his family. That, that bugged me. That bugged me, didn't settle well with me. And not in a good way, but in a self-righteous way. Because I, I of course, would have done so much better than him. (laughs) So because of my youthful arrogance, I struggled gleaning application from Gideon's story. Because I was somehow a candidate for, you know, God's service, but Gideon was disqualified, imagine that, yeah, but since then being more familiar with my own frailty, okay, and the character of God, I've been refreshed by Gideon's story, it's become very useful to me, I've been able to show greater mercy to those who struggle, more grace to those who could serve in some capacity, Uh, I've become more cautious about the dangers of success, all right? A friend of mine is a pastor who said the one thing that pastors should fear most is success. He's right. And then when we study the life of Gideon as a family, I'm careful to use his victories and failures to instruct my children and myself. God put it all there. All of it should be used. Amen? It's real. Without that part of the book of Judges, his life is unreal. Talk about that a little bit later. The story reveals that God calls people while in their weakness, just as he called every single one of us in weakness. And I think that some of you need to know that. You see, God knew that Gideon would doubt him over and over and over again. You remember, right? Fleeces and visions not his visions, dream of a Midianite, which I would never have gotten that interpretation of uh, the whole bread thing rolling down. And Anyway, you guys, you act like you never read the story. Shame on you. You're gonna read it tonight and you're gonna be horrified. <laughs> yeah. But it was Gideon that God chose and it was through Gideon that God delivered Israel crazy story yeah what about Barak you know after becoming more familiar with Judges 4 and then finding Barak's name in Hebrews 11 I thought why not Deborah why not Yael she was quite the woman yeah you know Barak chickened out and so the victory went to Yael the woman who killed Sisera by taking a tent peg and driving it through his skull Whew. Some of you look horrified. You never read it? It's a real story. Real story. Yeah. Barack wasn't half the man she was. It was, it was the women that rose to the top. Why aren't their names mentioned in Hebrews 11? That frustrated me. Where's equality in that? But the story is about those who are weak that God used. That's why his name's in there. And then I realized, at least Barak did brandish his sword, finally, and then fight for the Lord. I mean, once Deborah got him going, there was no stopping him. And if he had gotten to Sisera before Yael, he would have dispatched that evil man. It just didn't happen that way. Okay. So there's much in the story of Barak for slow starters. Yeah For late bloomers in the faith God made a mighty man out of a mouse Yeah Then there's Samson Not a stellar example for our young men Who cares how strong he was Yeah I've thought why not place Ehud's name In Hebrews chapter 11 He was the great assassin From Judges chapter 3 Who single-handedly Left-handedly Left-handers always want you to know They're left-handed Okay. He planned by himself and assassinated Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud stabbed him in his own chamber and then escaped the palace, rallied the armies of Israel, and crushed the oppressors. You can have Samson. Give me Ehud and his 18-inch dagger. I like Ehud. Just It's a great story. That's right. I'm right-handed, so I would have missed... Well. He was a large man, so I might not have missed. When I finally read the whole story of Samson, I was appalled. This Nazarite violated everything in his vow, and then some. He was a man filled with wine, lust, rage, and vengeance. He was a dishonor to his parents, his people, and a disgrace to his God. But God chose Samson, knowing all of that. And he chose him from birth. He knew that he was a man of moral weakness and that he would stumble because of it. But then I think, gosh, at least Samson finished well. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to celebrity pastors, we could use a lot more that finish well, amen? Samson finished well. He actually performed everything that God raised him up for and he killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his whole career. Yeah, one swoop. So Samson demonstrates that though you may falter along the way, you can still finish well. Now others may not want you to finish well. They'll make it hard for you to finish well. I think commentators for centuries have made it difficult for David to finish well. Be careful, right? Be careful. Finally, there's Jephthah of Gilead. I think his story bothers me the most. His probably bothers me. He's the interesting man. He was the son of a prostitute who was rejected by his half-brothers and then he became a criminal who raided villages. So we can't have too high of expectations for him, right? He wasn't some dumb criminal. The story's interesting. He happened to be well-informed about the scriptures and the history of Israel. He articulated that well in the story. But later, you know, the people of Gilead came to Jephthah and they pleaded with him. They said, Deliver us from the Ammonites. And he agreed as long as they would make him their ruler, their leader, which they did. And everything was great until the time of battle. And he was departing. He made a vow to the Lord saying that he, if the Lord gave him victory, he would offer whatever came out of his front door as a burnt offering to the Lord. Regardless of the value of the thing, he wanted to bless God for the victory. But he was expecting that whatever did come out of his front door would be some kind of animal for sacrifice. Well, God did grant victory to Jephthah, but what came running out of his door to greet him was his only child, his daughter. Yeah. And, of course, this is one of those stories that destroys the idea that all of the men of Israel didn't care for their daughters. We have Jairus' daughter, and we have Jairus in complete devastation over his little girl. Same with Jephthah. We have Caleb who favored his daughter. There's all kinds of great stories about daughters in the Bible, so don't give in to that nonsense. Anyway. Now, people were not to be offered on God's altar, so an animal was offered in the girl's place, but she was nonetheless dedicated to the Lord, which meant for her at that time that she would not be able to marry and have children into a middle eastern woman at that time that was the most devastating thing there was it was devastating to both of them and of course it set a course for her life that was tragic this story has never stopped bugging me not because of any injustice in god but because of the pure tragedy of it how could jephthah be so foolish why not go into your herd and select the finest animal and say lord this belongs to you at victory I could think of a thousand scenarios other than the dumb one he chose. But Jephthah's story is very important because he would not break his vow to the Lord. If there was ever a time to break a vow, I think it was now. But whatever Jephthah was not, he was a man of his word, even when it hurt. It's application there, isn't there? Don't we tell our kids, do the right thing even when it hurts? Keep your word even when it hurts. I sure want my kids to do that. Just don't be careless. (laughs) Yeah, as we can all be. But Jephthah wouldn't break his word as many of us have and do. Yeah. But the point is this. God chose men with some serious flaws to serve him and he didn't wait for those flaws to be completely ironed out before employing their services for his glory and the good of his people. If you don't get anything from the book of Judges, it should be that. It should be that. Now, God certainly wasn't pleased with Gideon's idolatry, Barak's cowardice, Samson's immorality, or Jephthah's foolishness. And, you know, I've often thought, you know, how much better these stories would have been minus all the bad stuff. Just imagine the hero that Gideon would have been without his idolatry. What a way to finish. It's amazing. And the champion, Brock would have been without his fear. What an example Samson would have been if he held true to his Nazarite oath and how great Jephthah's story would have ended with him as a grandfather. But if that were the case, none of these stories would relate to us. And we would go on thinking that God only calls the righteous and the flawless, which would exclude everyone in this room. Yeah, And then God's story of humanity Would be reduced to that of lore And fairy tale A story of God using unreal people For unreal events to entertain The real people of the world Yeah The Bible would be reduced to something like The Marvel comics But no, the men of Hebrews 11.32 Represent well the people in this room Represent well Broken and and flawed and undisciplined morally frail character deficient that's us and if anyone evaluates themselves above that they're arrogantly mistaken which just makes my point even stronger and the words of Paul should echo in their ears when Paul says he who thinks he stands should be where lest he falls 1 Corinthians ten, twelve. and the context of that statement is a warning against looking down on those who have sinned and think yourself stronger than they. Paul's saying, don't don't go there. Yeah, we're not that good. Yeah, God calls people in their weakness. You know, the beginning of our chapter in verse six said that without faith, it is impossible to please God, and then the content of the chapter is a list of people who please God by their faith even when they displayed moral weakness and ethical failure. Ooh, it doesn't feel right, does it? it kind of feels icky. <laughs> now, as I said at the beginning, God is, he doesn't record their stories to somehow demonstrate that he's not concerned about morality and character, because he is. Remember, it was for the immorality and idolatry of Israel that he had the enemies oppress them. So God is definitely concerned about our holiness, But I think that this point is important. I think it's worth noting that many atheists, and an atheist is someone who does not believe in God, many atheists are men of character and they're morally astute, but they will spend eternity in hell for rejecting Christ. While other men who struggle morally and demonstrate deficiencies in character are going to enjoy the presence of God for eternity because they trusted in Christ. It's true, faith without works is dead, but works without faith is deadly. You can't be saved by works. You can only be saved by faith. And of course, we know that works follow. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so you can be the most morally astounding person in the world, but if you do not have faith in the Son of God, it's just you'll perish. Now, we're gonna take, of course, or talk more in chapter 12 about character and virtue. I'll let the author bring that to us and how God wants our story to end better than their story. But that's not for now. But Now we're talking about God calling people and using people that had want of character. And if God was pleased to use men like Gideon, perhaps some of you have been too hard on yourself. Perhaps, okay? Too reluctant to serve. And I'd like to call you out, just like the Lord called Gideon out of the winepress of fear. The story is hilarious, if you're paying attention. If you're paying attention. Gideon, for fear that the Midianites would see him, he's down in a winepress, sifting or threshing wheat, rather than on a hilltop where the wind blows the wheat away, or the chaff away. So he's trying to be elusive, he's trying to hide, and he's trying to get the chaff off the wheat, and there's no wind. He probably looked ridiculous. Yeah. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him as he was hiding in the winepress, and the angel says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Go now in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites, Judges 6, 12, and 14, to which Gideon was like, you've got the wrong address. Obviously, there's no mighty man here in the wine press, okay? That should have been your first clue. And he basically says, no, I'm a wimp, and the wimpiest man in my family, That's who I am. And then begins this series of testings and verifications, and all of which the Lord was very patient. But he had his man, right? So through all this series of evidences, Gideon was convinced that the Lord was with him. And I'll tell you what, Gideon rose up and he slaughtered the Midianites and he liberated Israel. And and understand this, this was the last time the Midianites ever harassed Israel. That's how badly he defeated them. He brought them so low that they never rose again. Look what God did with Gideon. God used him in a big way that impacted Israel for generations. If God would use Gideon, why would he not use you if you show just a measure of faith? Yeah. If God used Samson, I hope there's a place for you. But more importantly, it's because God used Samson that there is no excuse for you. There is no excuse If you're saved Scripture says you're called according to God's purposes You should be serving the Lord Now you may not be called to the pastorate You may not currently meet the qualifications of an elder Or have the skills of a treasurer Or a musician But you can serve people Which by the way is the highest calling In the family of God And you know the beauty of service Is that it comes in all shapes and sizes It does of everything in ministry, you can be the most creative and enjoy the most diversity in service. I love that about service. You can, as Jesus said, light your, let your light so shine that people see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Sermon on the Mount. Okay? You can do it in the church. You can do it out of the church. So many things. You're called to His purposes. And some of you men should be teaching and leading in some context a home group perhaps in fact I believe that some of you should be church planting I do I do believe that and as Paul said the older women should be teaching the younger women and with that the younger women should be humbly seeking the older women the wiser and godly ones yeah you know, as I've said before, what we see in the life of Jesus and the apostles is that Christianity is a teaching and serving religion. You should be doing one of them or both of them in some capacity, okay, to some degree. Now, if you're concerned about your character or your moral failures, that's good. Okay, that's good, and I'm, I'm concerned too. But I want to end just with this, and then we're going to pray. It's 2 Timothy 2 20 through 21. Paul said this In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Let me read it one more time to you. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You should be serving the Lord. Now, if you're not, I can help you out with that. (laughs) And I would love to speak with you. If you have some character flaw, welcome to the party. If you've failed morally, we can get that behind you. Please come talk to me. I want to pray with you. I want to encourage you. Um, I would love to use you, okay? And um, so why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you do call and use broken people. Otherwise, none of us here would be serving you. We're broken. Some of us think we're not, but we are. We're failure waiting to happen. And if we don't fail, it's only by your grace. So Lord, we thank you for your sustaining grace. And Lord, I'm I'm so thankful for so many people that serve uh, in the context of the body here, in, in the context of outreach, in the context of their family, their friends, their business. So many amazing examples of service in this fellowship. And I'm grateful for that. What an example they are. But Lord, there are some that are reluctant for whatever reason. And and I pray that if it's for the reasons that we've talked about today, that you would move upon their heart, they would feel the conviction of your spirit, and they'd understand that being in the family means serving, it means being a part, as Paul said in Ephesians four, to contribute to the whole. So just move on their heart, and motivate them to service, to some capacity of ministry. Pray that you help eliminate their fears, and that you just lead them to a place where they become useful for you, to the family of God. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we've had here, and um, I just love being with my family. Thank you for the privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.